a spontaneous and unrehearsed interview. Hello, and welcome to the 118th episode of Curiosityness. I am Travis DeRose, the host, and I'm back. I know, it's been a while. Sorry for the the gap. Uh, did that Route 66 trip, and that was just a ton of content, but we're back now. We're, it was great, it was fun, a lot of YouTube video content, but we gotta get back to that good old podcast, you know? And this is a good episode to dive back into. It was really fun to record this episode. Uh, this episode's with Paul Fisher, the author of the book entitled The Man Who Invented Motion Pictures, and one of the my favorite books I've ever read. It's just such an interesting story that, that combines the the uh, in a story of invention and you know coming up with this tinkering and all this kind of stuff but also true crime murder mystery it's good it's really good and uh this is a great great interview paul does a really good job of of kind of explaining everything and walking us through the whole story it's it's great i think you're really gonna love it so uh let's just get into the episode uh here is episode 118 with paul fisher Right, Paul. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are you? Doing good. Excited to uh, talk. Thanks for coming on, but it's thanks for uh, having me. Yeah, heck yeah. I'm just uh, I'm honored to have you on. Seriously, your your book. You were kind enough to send me a a copy of your book, and man, it was just uh, pretty damn riveting. It's it's a great story. Thank you very much. Yeah, I hope it it I hope on a surface level at least it works as like a, a gripping true crime yarn and then it has all the other levels underneath knock on wood yeah no it's good i mean i'm not i i'm a you know casual reader i'm not very quick at reading but i i finished your book in like five days man i just really couldn't put it down it's 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 awesome that's what you want to hear that's awesome um well shoot i guess let's just uh dive into the story a little bit i um i mean can you just give us the you know the the premise of it because that that alone is just is great. Of course. So there was a guy called Louis Le Prince in the late 19th century who made the first film ever made six years before the Lumiere brothers were considered, you know, at least in Europe, the inventors of film. Um, and the film still exists in part. It's there to be seen. It can be found on the internet. He held patents to this technology. His cameras and projectors still exist. There's kind of no debate that the oldest surviving, surviving film is his, but no one learns about Le Prince as being the first to have got there in great part because before he was going to have his first public screening of the technology, he uh, was in France where he was originally from to visit family, uh, boarded a train in September, 1890 and never got off the train was never seen again. His body was never found, was never heard from ever again and kind of disappeared. And his family wanted to, you know, exploit, not in the negative ten sense of the word, but in the kind of economical sense of the word, wanted to exploit his invention, but couldn't for seven years. Because at least mm -hmm. at the time, if a person was missing and not yet declared dead, you had to wait seven years to use their intellectual property. So in that seven years that they had to wait, Thomas Edison, the Lumiere brothers, all these other people came out with their version of a motion picture camera and reaped all the profits. And his family, particularly his widow, Lizzie Le Prince, became convinced that Thomas Edison had had Louis Le Prince eliminated so they could sure. steal his invention. Yeah. And so that's kind of the setup is trying to figure out what happened to this guy, kind of restoring him 
in a way, restoring him as the first to have made a movie, but also questioning that idea of the first and whether it matters and what that means and, and how we yeah. think of that question. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of taking people on, on that journey that also comes hand in hand with thinking about motion pictures and what they mean, you know, cause at the time they were kind of the final frontier of technology intellectually, this idea that human beings had trains and boats and vehicles that went faster than anything in nature. And they were able to record sound in a way that, that nature hadn't originally allowed and take photographs and that kind of thing. But the idea of capturing movement, which was really associated with life, movement is life. So if you're capturing movement, you're capturing life, was really kind of like the last peak to climb for this period of of innovation, this golden age of innovation. So it kind of feeds all of that into this thing of this guy disappeared off a train, was never seen again. Let's try and solve (laughs) that mystery. At at such like an important, like critical juncture in his timeline. Yeah, so critical that it almost sounds made up. I remember starting my work on the book and that question of he was about to premiere his invention and then he disappeared almost feels like an excuse at such perfect timing. Yeah. But digging into it, you realize, oh no, he had taken all the steps and he had he had prepared everything he needed to go to New York, which is where he'd chosen to, to have this premiere. And he really was ready. And then one day just is gone. In a way that could happen in Victorian times where, where someone, you know, we weren't as connected and we weren't as, as trackable. We didn't have credit cards and statements and all this stuff that, that maps us out now. You could just vanish. Yeah, man. And that was that. Yeah. It's scary. Yeah, it's crazy. I think, what was it like? Uh, it was at least a month or so till his wife even knew he was missing, right? Yeah, because it was one of those things. So he, he worked in England for various reasons, but his family were in the United States and he'd gone to France. And so his brother, who he'd seen in France puts him on the train. His friends in England don't see him arrive, but they assume, oh, well, he must have stayed with his brother a little bit longer because at the time Mm -hmm. people didn't use the telephone, even though it existed. It was common for people to change their plans and you just caught up with them later. So by the time his wife in New York telegrams back to Europe going, hey, I haven't had a letter from him in a month. Has anybody had news? Then the guys in England go, oh, well, he's still in France with his brother. We'll telegram him. So they telegram his brother and his brother goes, oh, I thought he was with you in England. So it was one of those interesting ones where by the time anybody realized he was gone, it was already almost kind of a cold case, especially yeah. in those days. Um, and it was one of the challenges of that mystery in the sense that not only did he vanish, but there was very little evidence. I don't know if the dogs are a nightmare. That's all right. We'll talking and resume. Dogs in the background are fun. Um, so by the time, one of the fascinating things about it as a mystery is not just, not only did he vanish, but there's almost no evidence really on the face Mm -hmm. of it. And I dug up some stuff and, and, and as you know, from reading the book, I get to a theory that I feel pretty strongly about, but it took a bit of digging and it wasn't any of the clues or evidence that you would expect from that kind of mystery. You know, there's no Mm -hmm. crime scene. There's no forensics. It's all kind of contextual at that point. There's none of that. Yeah. And the, like the timelines were just so dragged out where that, you know, that back and forth communication would have been, you know, a, just a couple text messages today. Yeah. And at that time yeah. it's a telegram and you wait a couple of weeks, um, <laughs> you know, which was really crazy to think about this idea that New York to Europe was almost a completely different world. You know, something could happen one place and Europe wouldn't learn about it for another day and a half or, and, and that was a really fun world to write because on the surface of it, 
telephones do exist and, and wire cables do exist and all this stuff, but it wasn't so reliable and so urgent and so quick that the world had yet kind of moved on from like early 19th century. Kind of it's right on the cusp of a world that's about, and I write this in the book about Le Prince himself, you know, Le Prince was born at a time of horse-drawn carriages and sending letters. And he disappeared at a time of steamships and telegrams. And so the world was moving so fast. And he disappeared at this particular time that was right on that brink of where the present becomes the future. And that old world became more resemblable, like closer to what our world is. And that impacted his family trying to figure out what happened to him. Because a lot of those tools that we would take for granted now just didn't exist. And as you say, everything took forever. Mm -hmm. Everything took forever. Yeah, it did. And so... You, you had mentioned this earlier too about um, how it's, there was multiple people kind of like, or motion pictures were just kind of the next next thing to happen. It, it seems like, because there were multiple people working on it kind of at the yeah. same time. It, it did it. Do you think it was just kind of inevitable that if it wasn't Louis Le Prince who kind of figured it out that somebody would have? Somebody would have. And the amazing thing is all these people who are at best dimly aware of one another and in some cases, completely unaware. Mm -hmm. We're all pulling in the same direction and all really, really close. And there's a time, you know, essentially a kind of digest of it is the Industrial Revolution created this thing where each innovation would lead to another innovation because every new thing you came up with so obviously opened the field to something yeah. else. And so right. the prehistory of motion pictures is kind of 1830s people invent photography. And so now we can take pictures of people, but they can't move and exposure times are really long. And so it can only be for like stuff that's sitting still and not moving. And then in the 1870s, this English photographer called Edward Mybridge, he comes up or manages to take the first instantaneous picture. So you just trip the wire, takes a picture, you can get a clear picture of something in motion. And the yeah. second he does that, there are a bunch of people, scientists, artists, inventors, each for their own purposes who realize oh, well, if you can take a picture of an instance, then you can take a picture of a bunch of instance and then connect them back into the continuous kind of play of it. Yeah, when did and they, so, was that just kind of a, was that a discovery in itself to like figuring out that, you know, if you put basically just play a bunch of images quickly, it looks like motion? It was sort of in the sense that people were, were figuring out that literal thing that if you uh -huh. if you move a bunch of photographs it'll be motion but society already had stuff like uh zoetropes and little machines they were essentially animations but what they did was you would put a bunch of drawings on a strip and then spin it and if you looked at it through a window it would look like they were connected and there was this theory of persistence persistence of vision this theory that the way our eye works is by taking a bunch of images and then stitching them together um and that's not really how the eye works, but it was close enough mm -hmm. that people could use it as a basis. Um, and the thing about Le Prince that was interesting is he was an artist and a photographer, but he'd studied optics at university. So he'd studied and thought about the way we see things. And so even though he wasn't an inventor like Thomas Edison or an engineer or anything like that, he kind of had this self-taught array of skills they were perfectly suited to coming up with this technology and nothing else, really. <laughs> and I think that gave him the edge, the slight edge. Um, 
And, you know, not to get too complicated, other innovations fed into it. You know, it's celluloid, meaning flexible film, at some point needed to be invented for this to work. Because up until that point, people like Le Prince or Edison or anybody else were making motion pictures using glass plates or using paper film, stuff that ripped and broke and didn't work. And so to answer that previous question, there were a bunch of people who were really close and were kind of all waiting without knowing it for Mm -hmm. George Eastman to come up with celluloid film because that would fix their problems. Um, Because before they were doing, sorry, you said before they were doing like glass plates, which would break or like kind of paper film, paper film, which would just what set on fire. It would rip set on fire. um, Cause that was before celluloid film. So essentially film the way we, we have it now in like a disposable camera or film camera, which is plastic really. Yeah. Before that, George Eastman, who who invented the Kodak, he had invented this role of film, but it was all on paper. And that worked fine for photographers, right? Because they took one picture at a time. Great innovation. We don't need to carry on glass plates anymore, like that mm, big yeah. unwieldy camera thing. And there was no real kind of commercial drive to come up with anything else because the the only people who needed stronger film where people trying to invent motion pictures and that was like a couple dozen people in the world mm-hmm. um and so that innovation had to come along by chance really there was this thing called celluloid which was a plastic which was the first industrial man-made plastic that people used in like dentures and billiard balls and starch shirt collars but didn't really have a purpose until george eastman heard about it and went oh, if I can make film with this, then I've come up with something. Um, But there were a few guys like Le Prince and and a French scientist called Julietan Marais and Mybridge and, you know, Edison's crew who really were all super close to getting there, but they just hadn't figured out what do we use instead of glass or paper that's not going to break or rip or catch fire or, or anything like that. Yeah. Well, what's crazy is that celluloid is, I mean, if that's, is that still what you use if you're shooting on film? It is, yeah. Yeah, it's a version yeah. of that. So celluloid is the plastic under the chemicals that basically you know take in the image. Right. Um, and that's still what 35 millimeter is, and that's still what 16 millimeter is. And um, you know, in the bigger picture, that was also the first time that industrial plastic found like a medium that gave it its purpose. Like up until that point, plastic was just like a weird copycat of stuff we already had that was better. Mm -hmm. Um, And weirdly film was the first time where people went, Oh, okay. We can have plastic for specific purposes. That's an improvement. At least they thought so at the time on natural things. And then within, you know, this is tangential, but within 10, 20 years, we suddenly had all these other plastics to use for other things. And film was kind of the, the, the trial for that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's also interesting how much, you know, it seems so far away, but Le Prince's camera there were some people in England where the cameras kept in a museum who built an exact replica of it and who were able to run film through it and take film and use it exactly as you would a modern film camera. And the 35 millimeter frame is the size that William Dickinson, who worked for Thomas Edison, settled on for his films. So it's also crazy how much kind of pre-video, how much our film technology 
how closely it looks like what they were using in 1890, 1891, and really didn't change right. all that much except for being faster and better. But the principles were exactly the same as a yeah. hundred years earlier. Yeah, because they set he set thirty five millimeter, and that was kind of that was the standard for a really long time, and is still even used, right? Yeah, and the way the perforations were on the side of the film, and and to any degree that the first matters, that's also one of the things that strengthens the Prince's case as being the guy who invented motion pictures is he was the first person to have a camera that is recognizable as a film camera in the modern sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause other guys had tried stuff like putting a bunch of photography cameras in a row and then taking a bunch of pictures in a line and then stitching them back together. And he'd experimented with having 16 lenses on the face of one thing. Yeah. But the first guy to have a camera that kind of internally exactly works like a modern film camera was him and it's crazy mm-hmm. how close it was to to what people would have used in like 1995 yeah well it's fun to like kind of you know reading through the book i'm like kind of putting myself back in there of like of how they would they just kind of went through the process of figuring this out they're like okay we need we need a bunch of photos that are taken quickly or look similar and then we just need to play them quickly so but at first they're like well we can't like we can't figure out how to take a bunch of photos with the single lens. So let's just take a bunch of cameras and put them together and figure that out. But which is cool. And you could, you could take quick photos that way, but it didn't really look like it it didn't look right because the camera was was moving essentially. Yeah. Yeah. It would change the, the perspective would shift ever so slightly as if you were kind of like moving your, your camera. And Uh you know, one thing that was really cool is like, when I got into writing the book, I was really worried about all the technical stuff because film historians have arguments about the most arcane, pointless, four perforations, <laughs> three perforations, 12 frames per second, continuous movement, intermittent mechanisms, all this stuff that I was like, if I have to explain this to a general reader, it's going to be a nightmare. And actually, mm-hmm. what turned out that was cool is because Le Prince and people like him were kind of amateur innovators you know he kind of worked in a shed in the back of his house or in a spare room at work there is a degree of how they went about things that's really relatable it's almost like one of the books about innovation that my kid reads where it's kind of like try a thing find a problem try a thing find the problem and so there's something really interesting about the experience of being with him as you read the book of the tinkering of like, okay, the glass plates don't work, so I'll have to move them slower in the camera, but then I can't move them slower in the projector. It won't look like real movement. So maybe I'll need to duplicate them, but then I'll need to fix the lighting in the back, but then this light doesn't work. What if I use an Edison light bulb? And it's actually much more relatable as a puzzle than it is like, oh, you need an engineering degree to figure out what what this this is going to be. And so I'm really thrilled that the book doesn't have any of those three-page-long passages you sometimes get a narrative nonfiction where it's like, you know, get your thinking cap and your pencil out because I got <laughs> to explain how this works. But it's actually hopefully kind of understandable. Okay, this has got to move fast and that's got to be bright and that's got to not break. And that's what they're working with. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, no, I I think it it totally makes sense because it's a, it's a fairly basic concept that, uh, you know, anybody kind of understands, especially because we, we understand movies and stuff now. But I would like... I'm a little like jealous almost of of Louis and these guys trying to get to to tinker with that stuff and, and figure that out. Like that just seems it just seems pretty fun to kind of be in that workshop figuring that stuff out. Whereas now it's you know I don't like I mean tinkering is like 
building an NFT and coding a smart contract or something. It's, it's, it's different. And it's like, you know, way over my head. For sure. Same for me. It, it, that idea of invention being something mechanical, you know, something you don't necessarily need a degree in because he didn't. He was just kind of like a, an interested autodidact. That's completely gone. And it's part of, you know, obviously we're in a digital age and stuff's different, but it's also an aspect of the story, right? Because Le Prince grew up at this time or, or was of age and working at this time where our idea of an innovator was changing, so like inventors and innovators used to be creative, resourceful people, individuals who would kind of have this idea and follow through with it on their own. But in the 1880s, when Le Prince was working, that was changing. And it was kind of changing because of Thomas Edison, who was also trying to invent motion pictures. And it was changing because Edison was such a brandable genius mm-hmm. and the Industrial Revolution was such a like capitalistic boom, right? The age of capital that people realized, oh, inventors are actually assets. They're not crazy guys in their sheds coming up with stuff they can't explain. They're an asset on the balance sheet. And so Edison, at this time that the story takes place, was the first guy in the world who was an inventor who didn't do any inventing, but he had a lab and he had a bunch of inventors working for him. And he Mm -hmm. had JP Morgan and other bankers funding him. And he had essentially an R&D department and was really like the way, because people tend to ask, you know, have these positions of Edison was a thief and a demon and a fraud on the one hand, or he was the myth we learn about on the other hand, who was the greatest mind who ever lived. And the thing I always bring up is to me in this story, he's Steve Jobs, really. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy how close it is. He's a guy who specializes in coming out on a stage with his version of a turtleneck to announce <laughs> the future. And, you know, he had his, his, he had his workman's coat and he had his myth about pie and cigars and naps and whatever that are all branding elements that are so consistent with how we thought of Steve Jobs and his turtleneck and his glasses and his aphorisms and his vegan diets. And in the same way as, as Jobs became somebody who was much more about marketing and pitching and knowing what we would like and building this idea of the future as product. That's what Edison was. And he was the first guy in the world to be recognizable as that. And so mm-hmm. this story is kind of almost a battle between those two conceptions of, of human invention, you know, of the tinkerer at home and the capitalist mogul in the lab. And obviously, you know, for variety of factors it's the edison model that exists today and that you have you know elon musk is not down on the factory floor you know steve jobs wasn't tinkering with chips Mm -hmm. uh you know the the kind of tony stark myth of of the guy who just comes up with stuff off the top of his head kind of thing that's kind of what we think of when we think of geniuses and invention and and that kind of entrepreneurial version of it now and it's all born of edison and people like le prince were the last kind of widespread generation of people who thought they could invent something and make a, a, a living out of it without getting kind of lawyered to hell or, or swallowed up by a big company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he, that's a really good point that I learned a lot about Edison and from reading your book. Cause I, I had just been kind of never really thought about it, but I'd just kind of been sold on the, the idea that he was just the, the genius inventor and everything, but he was yeah. really like, you know, the businessman, you know, doing all of his patent protections and, and sending out those, uh, what would he send out where it was just kind of like a, 
a vague thing. He's like, oh, I'm working on this, yeah. but it's not really. So they're called caveats. And they were okay. a weird glitch of the patent system for a few decades where someone could say, so filing a patent is filing a piece of paper that says, I've invented this thing and I want to declare that it's mine. Filing a caveat was th- saying, I'm going to invent this thing and I'm giving you notice that I'm going to get to it, but mm-hmm. I haven't yet. And if anybody else comes in with a patent saying they invented it, you got to let them know I called shotgun. Yeah. That's really what it was. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. And Edison got to the point where he would file hundreds of these and he would read patents and he would read technical journals and he would read the papers and he had secretaries getting clippings for him and anything that sounded even remotely like an invention. He'd write up a caveat, send it into the patent office. It would get filed away. And the way it worked is, you know, let's say I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm going to invent this way to talk online and have the radio on your phone. And I haven't got to it, but I figured, I'm going to figure it out at some point. And then you come along and you go, I'd like to file a patent for something called a podcast. Then you would get a notice saying, oh, well, sorry, Paul said he was going to come up with it a couple of years ago. So actually, he's got dibs and we're going to give him a year now to file a patent. And if he does, then you didn't get there first. Even yeah. though I haven't done any work yet, and I'm really basically using the government to like snitch on people on my competition who are who are doing work I'm not doing. And so Edison would use this stuff all the time just to kind of claim and plant a flag into whole areas of innovation that he had no idea how to invent or whether he wanted to or whether he would. And because he had expensive lawyers and because he was famous, he got away with it for a long time. And a lot of the credit we give him for motion pictures is because he had these caveats that even though they came after the prince's actual patents, would be worded in a certain way that they would give him some kind of enforceable position. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's one of the things about Edison in a weird way. He was a genius. Like he was amazing at taking something that was 90% of the way there and finding a way to make it work. Mm -hmm. And he was amazing at being able to guide the people who worked for him in a direction or another. But he was human. And, you know, he had a couple of, you know, mostly related to the telegraph and phonograph, a couple of groundbreaking inventions. But there's this patriotic myth-making that wants to associate the whole of the modern world to him in a yeah. way. And that he started, that he, that he really cultivated and promoted. And, you know, motion pictures and ironically x-rays were kind of his last two big attempts at claiming something that wasn't really his mm-hmm. to cement his legacy. Um, you know, in a way that I also found really interesting writing at this point in time where there are so many people from politicians to entrepreneurs who were so concerned with legacy before they even finished doing something that that was Edison too. Like really, yeah. really, I get the sense in the 1880s when, when this story takes place, he'd, he'd invented a telegraph, he'd sort of invented the phonograph, he'd announced it. And he was already kind of on this media treadmill of, I got to come up with something else. I got to come up Mm -hmm. with something else. You're only as good as your last thing. Yeah. Which is also a very modern idea. You know, like Mm -hmm. Louis Daguerre took a photograph, went, I'm the father of photography and then retired. That was that. (laughs) But Edison was the first of, of, of the celebrities because he was really a huge celebrity. Like he was more recognizable than anybody else in America at that time. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. 
there's stories of like people could like write his name on an envelope and nothing else and stuff could find him right. or, you know, people knew he was from like drawings and because of, of printing presses and daily newspapers and all this stuff that was also coming to a head at that time, he was the first kind of non-politician who on this huge scale was obsessed with legacy, was obsessed with staying in the headlines, was obsessed with, I used to be cock of the walk. Now I'm a feather duster to making fun of me. I got to get back on top. Mm-hmm. Um, which I found really interesting because, you know, as a film nerd, there's so much about the magic of film that's about timelessness. That's about stuff staying a certain way, being captured, being replayed. And Edison's obsession with how we fit in our conception of history and time is really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and humanizing, because I don't think he was a fraud. I don't think he was um, any more of a crook than any CEO at any company is now. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like he squeezed people and he broke strikes and he broke the law if he could and he had lawyers to bully people and mm-hmm. all of that's awful and a bit crooked and corrupt. And also, you know, just another Tuesday for every other Fortune 500 company today, really. Yeah. Um, I mean, so he just nice kind of, yeah. And he, I mean, he was just kind of, you know, working the system a bit and using his power sure. and resources to, to, get ahead and use it as an advantage, which, you know, it's, you could see why people call him a kind of a, a jerk and a bad guy. Cause some of the stuff he does wasn't, you know, maybe morally the greatest thing, but he was just, he was looking out for himself, I guess. For sure. And I think we've celebrated him so much that it's due an adjustment. You know, he's in that period of like robber barons and railroad tycoons. And, you know, we all accept robber barons, railroad tycoons, amassing huge amounts of wealth, corrupt, not good guys. But Edison, who kind of did many of the same things, we've made into so much of a myth that now trying to rectify that to some kind of balance feels like slandering him. Like a lot of, you know, I know to a lot of people it's delicate, you know, because the expectation is saying he was no one and nothing and he was a fraud and he was a fake. And I don't think he was. And, and hopefully the book makes it clear that he wasn't. And he really was a genius. But the spirit of the age, the spirit of that kind of capitalism, was everything has got to get bigger and better and you got to be top dog all the time. And he, you know, behaved as entrepreneurs did then. You know, he saw a field and he wanted to cover it in factories. He saw profit and he wanted it for himself. He saw competition and he went, well, I have lawyers and friendly newspapermen. I'm going to destroy them. I mean, that's just mm-hmm. business. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that was really interesting in a sense as a foil uh, to, to Le Prince who may have been a better person, may have not, you know, but by virtue of being a private citizen, there's less information on him personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Le Prince had a vision of invention from his notebooks and his letters and his family's recollections. There was a lot more old fashioned and a lot more, you know, Edison famously said, he only thinks an invention has value if it can be sold. And Le Prince was one of those guys who wanted to invent something because he thought it would better mankind. Yeah. And, and that time period is also a matrix where the, the two things kind of got blurred and confused. Mm-hmm. And, and we got to assuming that if you could sell something and make a profit for it, it was probably good for everybody. And we weren't quite yet at the point where, where we are now, where we kind of go, oh, maybe there's a lot of stuff that's making money that's not great for us. Yeah, yeah. Um, you had mentioned before, too, about, uh, I think when we first started talking about, you know, who was who was really first, you know, trying to determine if Louis was the first one to, to make the first motion picture or was it Edison or whatever. And then he said, uh, you know, or does it really matter? 
What do you think? Yeah. Does, does it matter? I don't think it matters in a sense that, as you were saying, there's an inevitability to it. Uh-huh. That, you know, there are these theories of invention that, you know, with every new invention, the next one becomes inevitable because it just kind of has this magnetic pull on what we think is possible. And then complementarily, there's also a history of invention where everything you could think of, whether it's, you know, watches or the radio or the movies or the splitting of the atom or whatever it is in any field, if you look at it, you're like, ah, there was like four people who were very nearly there. There were 12 people who were very nearly there. There were people doing the same thing at opposite ends of the planet without knowing about each other somehow. Yeah. And so this idea that stuff's just in the ether. And if you happen to pluck it out, then you happen to pluck it out. And, you know, it obviously matters because of patents and because we've built our, our uh, economy of intellectual property on this idea of being first. And so, you know, if Le Prince had been proven to be first in court, then his family would have been very rich. Mm-hmm. But because Thomas Edison was proven to be first in court, a bunch of other film producers had to shut down and everybody moved away from New York to get away from Edison's lawyers and went to this place called Hollywood and started something else over there. And so it does impact history in that sense. But in the sense of the substance of it, not only does it not matter, but film is really interesting because it's one of those mediums or inventions. It's kind of hard to define. You know, we think of them as moving images, but people had made images move before. Mm-hmm. And then you go, yeah, but it was just the same second on a loop because they couldn't capture any more than that. And right. so you go, okay, so motion pictures are an extended period of action. And then people go, oh, no, there was this Frenchman called Charles Renault who made animated films before that. And so you go, no, okay, so it's live action extended. And you know what I mean? You start narrowing down this definition. Yeah. And you end up with that thing film historians get really obsessed about where it's, okay, okay, okay. It's on celluloid. It's more than X frames a second projected on a screen this way, that way. And by the time people got to arguing about these definitions, we were all watching stuff on video anyway. Mm-hmm. And then you go, is video a film? Because it's not those things. Is it, um, you know, you start kind of getting lost in the weeds a bit and you end up realizing kind of substantially it makes no difference. <laughs> it doesn't matter, and, yeah. yeah. What I found more interesting in terms of the first is people's philosophy to an invention. So all the pioneers you're mentioning earlier who did this stuff around the same time, there was Edison who wanted to invent something for commercial benefit and really didn't have any vision of motion pictures as anything else. There was the Lumiere brothers who, who saw it as a way to come up with another photography-related novelty, and they were makers of photo equipment, and that was their angle. There was a French scientist called Jules Marais who saw it as a way to help him uh, break down and capture movement. Mm-hmm. And then there's Le Prince, who was the first guy on the record to see the technology as a way to film real life and entertainment to be projected on a large screen, to be enjoyed in a theater with others. Mm-hmm. And that idea, that, that, that version of being the first to have a vision and a concept, it's harder to define, but it's almost more interesting than being the first to come up with the object. Cause Edison and the Lumiere brothers came up with their versions of the object and we're both separately convinced that people would lose interest within a year, that oh, wow. no one cared, that 
that is going yeah. to be a toy at fairgrounds, like a magic lantern. Right. And then people would be on to the next thing. And so that was cool too, that Le Prince was the first guy to have drawings in his notebooks of screening rooms. Yeah. To tell his family members, you'll be able to see how someone in Mongolia lives, and that's going to be amazing, and it's going to bring us together. That primacy is almost more interesting to me than, you know, I figured out the puzzle of, of mm-hmm. celluloid and, and lights first. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that, with that, that thinking. It is really interesting to see how he, well, they all kind of had their different, um, like, vision of what it would be a little bit like because yeah. when edison first came out with it it was just um it was just looking through like a little pinhole or whatever right it was just yeah, for the, one person to see yeah peep show device big box with goggles on a top and you lean onto it look into the goggles right and you know which again when we're arguing the first to do this or that like that the kinetoscope which which that machine was called mm-hmm. it, it's not 360 degrees but the experience isn't that different from putting a VR headset on. Oh, that's yeah. It that's was this idea of like, it's an individual experience. You put your eyes into this pair of goggles of other eyes and you're going to see life as you've never seen it before. It's really the same pitch. Yeah. And so does that make him kind of the first guy mm-hmm. to make that? It doesn't really, but it kind of does. And so that's this idea of who's the first. It's all so subjective. And, mm-hmm. you know, for me, you know, growing up in France, I never heard of Thomas Edison as the inventor of motion pictures. It was the Lumiere brothers. And then I moved to New York and I went to film school in New York and, and found that, oh, okay, over here, Edison's the inventor of motion pictures. Mm-hmm. And it literally just was because the French go, uh, nope, it has to be projected. Otherwise, it's not a film. Right. <laughs> and I guess I agree with that because that's what uh-huh. I think of when I think of a film. But it's also kind of weird and arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from the get-go, you're taking a subjective position, even between these two myths of what happened. you got to choose one based on a judgment call. Mm-hmm. And that's a weird way to decide who invented something and who should make billions off of it and all of that. And, you know, the cool thing was back then when people were inventing it, they were obviously coming up with these requirements as they went and weren't that bothered about the requirements. It's something you only decide in hindsight. Yeah. You know, Le, Le Prince just thought, Le Prince had worked in something called panoramas, which was an entertainment medium at the time where you would walk into a big hangar and gigantic paintings would hang on the wall 360 degrees and there'd be light effects and smoke effects and mannequins and whatever and sound to make you feel like you had stepped onto a battlefield or something. And so because of that, his take on movies was, oh, well, if I could put it on a big screen like that, that would be awesome. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't thinking that that defines what the thing is. It's interesting that we only kind of worry about those things after the fact. But at the time, everyone's finding their own way through stuff. And everybody's got their own purposes and their own backgrounds. And, you know, Edison's thing was partly, you know, it's possible he couldn't figure out projection. But more likely, he'd never even thought about projection. More likely, he just thought, if I charge every person individually for a minute at this box, I'm going to make more money than if I charge a bunch of people for a shared screening. Yeah, his thinking was totally different. Yeah. Yeah. And so all these things to parse feed into who was the first. And, you know, but, you know, you could go literal. Mm-hmm. You, could, you could go, if the patent system is about determining who was the first, then the first guy to get a patent 
was the first. And in that case, Louis Le Prince was the first in like every country imaginable. Mm-hmm. And that was interesting to me too, because then it's a cut and dried kind of issue. Yeah. But people still don't know about it. And, and that, that was yeah. really crazy at the beginning to be like, well, we had the patents and the cameras are definitely real and the film stuff, then it's definitely him. Right. Yeah. And then you realize, you know, the reason we don't think of it as being him is because all the other forces that feed into deciding that are really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's what I love about your book too, is it's, it's like the history of, you know, motion pictures, the inventions, all that stuff. But then it's also tied into like the, this mysterious disappearance. Um, So let's get into that a little bit too, where, um, so on the timeline of, so Louis is, he's kind of, figured it out. He's, he feels pretty confident. He's got a few patents, right? And so now he's going to, to show it off. Exactly. So to kind of oversimplify, 1888, he gets celluloid. He makes his first successful films. Those are the films that still survive today that you can watch. Mm-hmm. And his family is in America. He's in England working because that's where you can get the resources and, and factory space to do so. Over the course of 1889, he gathers all his money, his financing. He had an inheritance from his mother puts his affairs in order, builds his prototype of a camera into this beautiful mahogany version of it. You can actually show investors to say, you know, this isn't just a crappy prototype. It's a machine that works great. Tells his wife in New York, find me a venue. His wife books this mansion called the Jamel Mansion, which was very famous at the time, sat um, uptown in New York on the hill, had associations to George Washington, and Aaron Burr, and it was where the first cabinet meeting of the Independent American Republic took place. Great venue. We're going to announce the future there. And then Le Prince tells his workers in England, you know, I'm going to France, seeing my family before I go back to America, pack up everything. I'll be back on, I think, Thursday. And then he goes to France, and then he disappears. And that's 1890. And the thing that was really interesting when I came to it is... There are obviously already theories of what happened to him, right? Because people have been trying to solve this thing for 130 years. Yeah. And the dominant ones were, so I got to backtrack a little bit here because it's interesting. But so he disappears. And then a few months later, Thomas Edison announces, I've come up with motion pictures. Yes. Yeah. Crazy timing. And the thing he announces is works weirdly exactly like Le Prince's camera worked. (laughs) And not just that. But there's a caveat, one of those weird, I'm going to invent this pre-patents that Edison filed around the time Le Prince disappeared, which is the first time his camera works the same way as Le Prince's, because every previous Edison prototype would have been a total failure. Mm -hmm. So the kind of dominant theories for what happened to Le Prince was Thomas Edison bumped him off so he could steal this thing, number one. Sure. Number two, Le Prince was running out of money. The stuff actually wasn't working. He was going to go back to, he was going to have to go back to America to see his wife and kids and say, I've failed. And so he killed himself. That's option number two. Option mm-hmm. number three is he got really unlucky. He got on a train, came to Paris. Paris was a really dangerous, rowdy city at the time. They used to dig bodies out of the river every other week. He comes out of the train station with his bags and his kind of bourgeois middle-class appearance. Somebody hits him on the head steals everything, dumps them in the river. Option number four is someone else killed him. Yeah. You know, and then there were a few others, you know, there's option number five. He joined the foreign legion, blah, 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 all this stuff that you have to, I guess, consider, but makes no sense. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, and the cool thing was, as I was saying earlier, there's not enough kind of direct evidence of a crime scene to kind of do your kind of Netflix making a murderer forensic analysis mm-hmm. of this. But there's so much contextual stuff around what steps did he take for the future? What was his headspace at the time? What were his financials? What were the financials of everybody else in his orbit? What's in his letters and his notebooks and court records for him, for Edison, for everybody else? You can get at the same really cool, I think, true crime experience where, you know, I get, I get to a conclusion at the end that I feel really strongly about this is what happened. Mm-hmm. But there's also just enough give and there's no smoking gun. It is 140 years ago. Yeah. That, you know, I hope it's one of those things where you can have that experience that is so cool about true crime where you'll have had this, where I remember listening to Serial when it first came out that first season and arguing with friends in the pub about, yep. do you believe that? Do you not believe that? It's got a bit of that give in there. It does, um, yeah. Because you don't get to the end and it's like, and I found a confession letter because that doesn't exist. Right. Um and so it was really cool to be able to write it as a yarn in that way with mm-hmm. all those things of like honest misdirection and, and assumptions made by his family. And so, you know, it's kind of a doubling up. I was kind of hoping I could smuggle the, the history of film invention and cultural history into this true crime yarn and then also smuggle this true crime yarn into a kind of cultural history Yeah, and, and get away with both. Oh, boy, I think you did. Yeah, mission accomplished on that. It's Thank just you. so fun. Well, I, I think just for me, the um, just the theory and, and it was uh, um, his wife, Lizzie, who also kind of subscribed to that or came up with it. But it's just it's just so fishy that, you know, Louis dis- disappears. And then a few months later, Thomas Edison changes his patent and, and it looks similar to his. And then he releases his his motion picture. And it's, to me, that was just the most, that's just such a fun theory. I love that. It's a great theory and it's a great human thing as well. You know, I, there's a great part of the story where you're kind of in Lizzie, his wife, you're kind of in Lizzie's shoes because she's the one looking for him and surviving him and trying Mm -hmm. to parse out what happened to him. And that kind of experience I always imagined of, your husband's away for a long time. You're raising these four kids. You're sinking all of the family money into this crazy thing. Cause it really was at the time. Oh yeah. I'm going to put life in a box and I can replay it whenever you want. I'm going to support him in that vision. We're going to do that. And then just when we're about to reach it, he's going to be gone yeah. just out of nowhere, completely gone. And then a year later, I'm going to have to walk through Manhattan where there are storefronts where someone has come up with a version of this invention, a version of this crazy thing, and they're making a fortune from it. And their faces on the billboards and their bust is in the hallway and people are celebrating him as a genius. And I'm moving myself and my daughters out of a tiny apartment to a tinier apartment because we are broke. Mm -hmm. And no one remembers us and I can't do anything about it for another six years. Yes. Because he's missing and dead. And if he's missing, I can't touch his stuff. Yeah, she's helpless. Yeah, and like the impotence of that and the anger you would have (laughs) at seeing Thomas Thomas Edison's face everywhere going, (laughs) I did this. Yeah. And there's nothing you can do about it for years and years and years. And it was snatched away from you. Mm -hmm. 
Well, like, and it's sad could, because she's she's even of the mind. She's thinking that Thomas Edison, you know, somehow had him knocked off, right? Knocked off, and and you know, I think my sense of it, and it's not a huge spoiler because I think you 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 figure out pretty early in the book that the timelines don't really line up for Thomas Edison to be Lex Luthor, as mu- as fun as it would be, mm-hmm. and that that's not what he did. My reading of it is that. In a really human way, Lizzie started from a place of, it's terrible. It should have been ours and it isn't. Yeah. And that grew into, it should have been ours and the people taking advantage of it stole it. Yeah. And that grew into, it should have been ours and the people who stole it, stole it by getting rid of him. Yep. So by the time she was older and frail and there's literally movie palaces everywhere. And everyone's dream is to be in movies. And her name and her family's name has been completely cut out of that. And other people in her family had died or suffered because of that. Because there's mm-hmm. a great tragic kind of set of consequences after Louis' disappearance. I think she just got to the point where it's kind of like there was a nebulous of they that was to blame for everything that had happened to her and her family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they was Thomas Edison and Thomas Edison was they. Um, Cause there are times reading one of the sources is she had an unpublished memoir. She wrote trying to restore Louis to being remembered. And there are times where it's really hard to, to work out. Does she mean Thomas Edison literally? Mm-hmm. Well, here she really does seem to mean literally, but over here she seems to mean fate or everybody else who didn't have some kind of, I don't know, decency to go, ah, yes, your patent did indeed come first. Please have the money. There's a whole set of things in her mind of bitterness of, you know, by the end she had lost her husband and more than one child to this crazy thing. Yeah. Um, in a way that's really tragic and, and relatable. And, mm-hmm. and sorry, Travis, I know I bang on, but I think that's also something I like about the story was all those kind of little nesting dolls of its true crime, its cultural history. And then it's this Victorian family tragedy. It's so sad. Yeah. Yeah. And it's what Lizzie goes through. Yeah. And it's got all of this all together. And hopefully, you know, cause I'm under no illusions. No one's going to read a book and a year later still be thinking about perforations and frame rates. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, that's kind of like, that's right. the MacGuffin to what you're doing. Yeah. But hopefully you will be thinking a year later about, like a mother sitting in her house in the dark and her husband's just vanished. Mm-hmm. And then the whole world falls in love with this thing you thought should have been yours. Yeah. And what are you going to do now? Yeah. And that sticks with you, hopefully. Yeah. Right on the cusp of it. And you've, you've suffered and, and, uh, you know, given up so much to, to get to that point and it's just taken away from you. Snatched and away. The, and it's the mystery. She doesn't even know what happened to just the, uh, you know, to not know would just be horrible too. really horrible. And again, this is a tangent, but also our idea of finding out and, and being a detective and solving a crime that we have now was only kind of being invented. Then, you know, mm-hmm. that was the year he disappeared was the year Sherlock Holmes appeared in print. And, and yeah. that was, you know, the period of rogues galleries and this idea of using photography and fingerprints and do you, up until that point, <clears throat> investigating a crime was really turning up and asking people what they saw and then nabbing the guy who seemed to look like it. Right. And so 
I think there was real powerlessness on her side as well of not just it's got snatched away and my husband's disappeared and all that, but I kind of have to sit here. It happened in France. I'm in New York. I've got these kids. I can't just leave them. I can't afford to go. Um, and so in a way, what would happen now, which was immediately there's an inquest and investigation, you call the cops, stuff happens. Mm-hmm. She was also kind of having to figure out what that meant yeah, and having to, to come to terms psychologically with the only way I get to, to get these patents and inventions back in a few years is by accepting that he's dead. I have to go to a notary's office and say, okay, I, I, I grant that he's dead. Can I have his stuff now to, to fight for that legacy? And that was sad too, that up until that point, she's convincing herself he might be alive somewhere. And that's insane. Your husband isn't just living under a different name somewhere else for six years. I mean, that could happen, but he didn't seem to type and there's nothing to support that theory. And if it had happened, it's probably not good news for you, his wife, that he chose to start the life without you. But she'd convinced herself (laughs) for a long time that maybe he's out there. Maybe he's somewhere. Maybe he's being held hostage. Maybe he banged his head and he's in a mental asylum. Mm -hmm. And as she had to kind of grow to accept that, you know, as, as I think her sons and daughters, I get the impression told her like, look, mom, he's not just like in hiding for seven years Yeah, to get his invention back to fight for his legacy meant like literally black on white on a piece of paper go. I, I agree. He's dead. And psychologically that's brutal. Yep. Um, you know, and Lizzie was one of those Victorian women. So she and Louis met in Paris when they were both artists. They were both painters and Lizzie had worked in the same studio as Rodin for a French uh, sculptor called Caillibelleurs. And so she had ambitions. Mm-hmm. She had talent. She, she started a school of art that she then dismantled to go to New York to follow what Louis was doing. And she had a chance to be one of the first teachers at Stanford university. And Louis made her turn that down because what was more important to the male genius was his thing. Right. And so you know, there's all of that dimension to her that's really tragic too, which was in many ways she did the right thing supporting the stream, right? If that had panned out, yeah. it would have paid off hugely. But in many ways, there was so much she sacrificed even before she lost stuff through the disappearance. Right. And so much that she gave up to box herself in for for the sake of what he was doing. Mm-hmm. That it just adds an extra layer of terrible when it all yeah. falls to pieces really out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And then she was able to, well, I mean, so she had to wait that seven years because seven years, because he just disappeared before she could even really even have the opportunity to try to, to fight for his patents or anything like that. But up against Thomas Edison, she just really has no, no chance at all. Right. And no chance. So, and not just Edison, but by then the whole, this whole new medium and industry of film, because what happened was, even Thomas Edison's film camera, he didn't invent. He had no clue how the thing worked. Uh-huh. There was a guy called William Kennedy Laurie Dixon, yeah. WKL Dixon, who worked for Edison, and he did all the day-to-day work. And he came up with the kinetoscope and the kinetograph. And there came a point where Dixon wanted more credit, really. And the only way to do that when you were around Thomas Edison was to leave Thomas Edison. Right. So by 1897, which is when Lizzie can get can declare Louis dead and kind of get control back over his patents. Edison is running a kind of Edison picture company that's making a fortune. 
Mm-hmm. And Dixon, who used to be Edison's protege, is at this company called Mutoscope, Biograph and Mutoscope. Their name changed all the time because Victorians loved weird, fancy names. <laughs> and this drives Edison crazy. It, it drives him crazy that people are using the film camera that he feels is his. Mm-hmm. And worst of all, that Dixon, who used to work for him, has now got a camera that the newspapers are saying is better than Edison's own experience. Ooh, yeah. And so Edison decides, I'm going to sue everybody. I'm going to prove I had the first caveat, back to those things. And I'm going to claim that I don't just own that machine, I own the entire medium. That anybody making moving images, no matter how they move, is stealing from me. And the big fish to take down is Dixon's company, Mutoscope. Mm -hmm. So there's this big lawsuit between Edison's company and the Biograph and Mutoscope. And the Mutoscope lawyers, they go through the paperwork and they work out, wait a second, Edison wasn't even first. There's this guy called Louis Le Prince. He had a thing. He was first. Can we find that guy? And then they realize, well, he's disappeared. So we can't find him, but we can find his family. And so what happens is the Mutoscope lawyers tell Lizzie and her son, Adolf, who used to work with Louis, can you come as expert witnesses and show us that and show the courts that Le Prince's camera worked, that he made films, and that he came first. And if he came first, Edison can't have come first. And the Le Princes agree, because it seems like their only chance to go toe-to-toe with Edison in the courtroom, because they can't afford those lawyers. But if they're piggybacking on this bigger lawsuit, they're in. Right. It's, and, it's exciting. It's their chance to, to fight for this. Exactly. Yeah. And the tragic thing, really, is they didn't realize. They th- came into it thinking, if we can use this opportunity to prove Louis came first, then he's the father of motion pictures. You know, We can restore him in, in law, and we can make a little bit of money and all of that. What they don't realize is even the lawyers at Mutoscope don't care. <laughs> yeah. They don't care that he's first. They just want to no. prove that Edison wasn't. Right. And so in a way, I think that has happened to a lot of people before and since. Um, they get kind of chewed up and spat out by that whole process. And it's really sad because you read those court papers and they kind of did everything right in a sense of proving, you know, they were able to prove the Round Hay Garden scene, which is one of Le Prince's films, came before Edison because one mm-hmm. of the people in it had died before Edison made his first film. So if they're alive right. in that film, it must have been before. And, you know, they had the strips of films and they brought over the camera. And it's really just because they weren't lawyers and they couldn't navigate the courtroom. Yeah. And they were in Mutoscope's corner, not their own corner. So they were mm-hmm. taken advantage of. And that was almost like a second death. I think for that family, this idea of yeah. like he disappears, we wait seven years, we agree he's dead. Now we have a chance to at least restore his legacy. And and we get caught, as Le Prince's son said, we get caught between the devil and the deep blue sea, just, you know, rock in a hard place, mm-hmm. screwed. Um, and then it gets taken away from you again. Yeah. Um, you know, and Edison wins in the end. It, 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 at the end of years of appeals and shenanigans and I'm Thomas Edison, give me my way. Mm -hmm. You know, worst of all, he manages to double down on what you feel is his theft and his dishonesty. Um, And so that was a whole other fascinating part of it. Yeah. You know, after he disappeared, the trials weren't over. And then I didn't realize too, that that may have been, or was a big reason why, you know, Edison and his attorneys in New York was a reason why the film industry moved to the other side of the country in LA. It's great. Yeah. So all of this ends up with Edison winning this 
really absurd decision that even people at the time knew was absurd uh-huh. and and only happened because Edison was Edison and the judge in question had no understanding what he was, what he was dealing with. But the final appeal, a judge decides, I actually agree with Thomas Edison. He owns the whole medium of motion pictures. So effective today, anybody who makes a film of any kind or sells a film in any kind in America owes Thomas Edison a license fee and Jeez. needs Thomas Edison's permission. And so immediately, a bunch of companies get shut down, uh, get sued, get bankrupted by lawsuits. But a bunch of other independent companies go, we want to keep on making films. Um, what if we go all the way west? We go to California. Labor is cheap. The courts aren't that hung up on, on copyright stuff. <laughs> and if we need to, the Mexican border is right there. We hop right over. There's no thugs to break our legs. There's no lawyers to service papers. We're oh, scot-free. Yeah, sure. Uh-huh. And so they go out there and they realize, oh, this is everything we expected and it's beautiful and we can shoot Westerns over here and city stuff over there and there's mountains there and beaches here and there's every location you could want. Right. Um, and so some of them start setting up in a little town called Hollywood that's just kind of near LA and it's quiet and it's bucolic and there's orange groves and, um, and it kind of worked. They were out of Edison's reach. And within a few years, Edison realized, okay, suing everybody to death is quite expensive and time consuming. Mm-hmm. So I'll start the trust instead. I'll actually bring in Mutoscope. I'll bring in Pate, all the other big companies, and we'll start the cartel and run the market this way. Um, and that's how things stayed until the, that got broken up and the companies out in Hollywood, the studios kind of got mm-hmm. the upper hand because, you know, again, they had the advantage. You could shoot anything you wanted for cheaper with more creativity than Thomas Edison just shooting stuff in a box in New Jersey. Right, yeah. Um, but it is crazy how it's directly linked to that decision. We don't want to mm-hmm. pay Thomas Edison money, so we're going to go to Hollywood and start this other thing. Yeah. And, um, you know, I kind of knew that from film school, but it was cool to see that it was the same court case that involved the Princess. There's a kind of poetry to the guy who invented motion pictures for whom Hollywood was a word that would have had no association excuse me, uh, for whom Hollywood is a word with no association, was involved in the court case that then directly leads away from Edison into to kind of the studio system. Yeah, that's cool when you connect line. those dots. Yeah. yeah, Man, well, Paul, what what a story, man. This is awesome. I love this. And uh, yeah, you have in your in the book, you give a good a good theory uh, about what happened, which I, I really like. So we'll let people uh check out the book to get that one. Um, so why don't you tell tell people about the book, where they can get it, when it's coming out, all that stuff. Sure. Uh, book is out in uh, North America April 19th uh, from Simon & Schuster. Uh, so it'll be pretty much everywhere. Uh, you can find it. You can pre-order it now um, You know, through Simon & Schuster's website, from your local bookshop, from bookshop.org. I'm a big you know, independent local bookshop person. So yeah. it's on Amazon and everywhere else. But if you can get it from... Your, your bookshop. That's awesome. Um, so that's April 19th everywhere. Um, for anybody out of the US, April 7th, it's out in the United Kingdom. It can also be pre-ordered okay. everywhere else. Um, and, you know, the usual, it's a, it's a hardcover, it's an audiobook, it's an ebook. Um, and, and yeah, hopefully it's enjoyable. Yeah. Heck yeah. I, I seriously love the book. It was just, Thank uh, you so much. yeah, the way you, you bring those, 
to the the murder mystery type of thing with the just the historical in, invention i i really did did love it it was uh felt like it was written for me t- totally the stuff that i'm into i really appreciate it thank you i want i always think i always want to write the book my dad might pick up at the airport if you had a red eye to get through you know what i mean like it's not <laughs> yeah it's not for a film nerd necessary because they'll come anyway it's it's like yeah you know with someone who just likes yarns be able to be mm-hmm. into this one so i hope it, it plays that way yeah no you did a great job so thank you so cool. much well yeah thanks for coming on and sharing the story too we love it so much paul and uh yeah thanks again thanks so much for inviting me that was awesome and that concludes the episode good stuff huh told you you'd like it uh thanks for being here thanks for listening to the end if you made it this far and uh thanks for paul for being on the episode really appreciate you coming on sharing all that stuff paul that was that was good stuff um let's see this is curiosityness you can find curiosityness on social media on instagram on facebook uh we're on there at curiosityness podcast i'm travis derose the host i'm on Instagram at Trav DeRose. You can send me your tips, your thoughts, your feedback, your ideas for new episodes. Those are always helpful. Maybe you got a good podcast guest who you want to come on here. Maybe you want to come on here. Well, I never thought of that one. Uh, send me an email, Travis at curiosityness.com. And uh, I think that's all I got to say. Uh, I'm, I'm blanking a little bit. It's been so long since I've done this, but I think that covers everything that needs to be covered. Uh, Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.